Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Robert Jones Jr. on his debut novel, The Prophets. Robert Jones Jr. is a writer from Brooklyn. He earned both his BFA in creative writing and an MFA in fiction from Brooklyn College. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Essence, Gorka and The Grio. And he is the creator of the social justice, social media community, Son of Baldwin. And today we're going to talk about Robert's debut novel, which is The Prophets. Robert, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you so much for having me. First of all, tell us how you would describe this novel, The Prophets. I would describe the novel as being about Samuel and Isaiah, two enslaved young men on a plantation in Mississippi during antebellum slavery in the United States. And these two young men are in love. And the novel revolves around how their love inspires, angers, and transforms everyone around them, whether fellow enslaved or enslaver. In my proof copy of the book, there's a letter from yourself to readers at the beginning, which gives some of your your aims for the book. One of the things it does is describes the book as as much a prayer as a book. And I wanted to talk about what you mean by that. You know, when I was writing The Prophets, so much of it came to me from a place that I cannot describe in words. I felt as though I was a conduit for some other energy, a witness for some other testimony. And in Christian parlance, that is as close to prayer as one gets. You're communing with something that you feel is larger than yourself. You're having a conversation with something larger than yourself. And for great chunks of this book, that's what it felt like, um, as though um, I was being visited by the ghosts of ancestors to speak on their behalf for things that have been missing from the narrative, whether um, literary or historical. And so that's, that's what I mean when I say this book feels somewhat like a prayer. It feels like I was communing with something much greater than me. And indeed, those ancestors appear in the book and, and speak to our characters, I guess, as a sort of chorus. And we'll, we'll come back 
to that in a little while. But first of all, let's talk about this book. It's I described it as your debut novel, as your debut novel, but it, it sure doesn't read like a debut novel. It's an incredibly accomplished story. And I, I wanted to talk about how it came together over what sort of period the book was written. My goodness. I started writing what would eventually become The Prophets my first semester of grad school in 2006. So it took the better part of about 14 years for me to arrive at what you're holding in your hands. Years and years of writing and rewriting and rewriting because I didn't feel up to the task that I felt um, somewhat unskilled and somewhat out of my depth and trying to bring together the um, story that I really wanted to bring together, particularly in the beginning of the process. The novel started out really being told just from one character's point of view, and I kept running into roadblocks um, in attempting to um, talk about the things I wanted to talk about. And in the process of revision, realized that this needed to be a polyphonic narrative where many characters got to speak, and but that at the center of this book should always remain the love of Samuel and Isaiah. So it was a really long process of failing, then uh, eventually finding the right voices, the right structure in which to tell this tale. And the the acknowledgements of the book has a a whole list of writers that you acknowledge as influences. And I just wanted to talk about, you know, some of those who who were major influences on your work. In terms of fiction, I would say my greatest influence is Toni Morrison, The Dearly Departed. She taught me not just how to talk about this time period that I'm discussing, antebellum slavery, which in her work, Beloved, she really nails in terms of ensuring that the enslaved characters are actually characters and that slavery is simply the backdrop, the backdrop of horror in which these characters are dwelling. Um, She taught me that firstly. And secondly, she taught me that the language must rise to the occasion of not just revealing the horror, but also revealing the humanity. And so I tried really hard. When I was first writing this novel, I was writing it quite plainly in plain words that while descriptive did not do much more than describe. And I wanted the reader to be able to feel and wonder um, because one must remember that although this was a horrible time in history, the landscape itself was oftentimes beautiful. And that is a hard sort of juxtaposition to hold in one's um, mind that there are these horrors occurring in this beautiful landscape. And so I needed language to be able to describe both of those things. And um, it was Toni Morrison who made me think about the ways in which I should make these descriptions. Um, And then there's a whole host of other writers that I look to as mentors. Um, James Baldwin is one. And then really, it's it's really a group of Black women writers from Zora Neale Hurston to Alice Walker, Tony Cade Bambara to Gloria Naylor, Gail Jones to Edwidge Dandekat, and so many others who I think, for me, It's been my experience that Black women writers in particular, perhaps more than any other demographic of writers, have access to and are not afraid to approach and tell the truth in a way that is both damning and edifying. And I want it to be within that tradition of writers. 
And one of the things certainly in in Beloved that Tony Morrison does, and and I can remember having a conversation with the, the writer Jasmine Ward a couple of years ago about her work, is this way in which, as we've said, in this book, the um, the prophets, the, the spirits of the ancestors are there present in a way that is very real in this story. And in the way often in these, these narratives, that world of the, the supernatural world and the real world, this terrible real world that are characters inhabit are almost one continuum well the ancestors are very real for me as robert jones jr whenever i i get a feeling a gut feeling that something is not right or i get a gut feeling that something is right yes i could say that that was just my own experiences speaking into me or through me but on a more metaphysical level i'd like to think that it is my ancestors guiding me and protecting me. And so when I was writing The Prophets, the ancestral voice wasn't there in the beginning, but came to me in a dream. And so when I heard this voice say to me, or this person say to me in the dream, you do not yet know us. And I woke up in the middle of the night to write that down and then woke up the next morning to see what I scribbled down on a piece of paper in the dark and realized that this was a direct address and perhaps the ancestors were saying that they needed to have a part in this story. I listened and I I figured out a way to ensure that their voices were weaving in and out, talking not just to me, not just to the characters in the book, but also to the reader to say, this is how it was. I leave to you how it ought to be, but let me give you the cautionary tale. And so, yeah, they play a crucial role in this book. And, and I, quite like the way they weave themselves in and out and how they reveal themselves in the beginning. You talked about, you know, the length of time it took to write this book and a number of roadblocks along the way in terms of the subject matter you wanted to talk about. And, you know, the major theme of this story is Black queerness and its existence in the past, in in this instance, in antebellum America. And again, something that is not particularly widely discussed already. So I wanted to talk about, first of all, your, your I guess, initial researches into, into the subject matter. Well, it's so interesting you bring this up because just earlier today on Twitter, I was having a bit of a debate with someone from Nigeria about queerness and his reluctance to accept Black queer people in Nigeria because he didn't like the name. He didn't like the fact that they were called LGBTQ and that if you could just call it another name, maybe then we can think about your humanity. And my point was, well, what does it matter? I'm human and I'm here, irrespective of what I call myself, you should be respecting my humanity, period, the end. There's no argument to be had, but he didn't quite understand. And he thought, well, the the labels make us think of uh, American colonialism and Western colonialism. And I thought, well, Christianity is not an artifact of of Nigeria, and you accept that readily. Why is this different? Those were the fears I had in writing this book, is that I would encounter those individuals who would reject wholly the idea that Blackness and queerness are not incompatible, and that Black queer people, whether we had a word to describe them or not, have existed as long as human beings have existed. And so I had to do a ton of research because I could not find in the classical canon 
any examples other than those that presented Black queerness as some sort of act of depravity. So where I turned to were the oral histories of continental Africans, like Esther Arma from Ghana, who explained, well, if you had asked my great-grandparents, she said, what is a homosexual? They would have said, I don't know, and we don't have that here. And any modern person, any modern person would have walked away from that thinking, well, I guess there are no homosexuals in Ghana. But she said, if you had explained to her great-grandparents what you meant by homosexual, they would have said, oh, you mean love. Because in her culture, there was no reason to single out homosexuality from any other kind of love. It was all part of the same continuum, the same culture, the same landscape. And that is where I found the freedom to be able to talk about um, Samuel and Isaiah. And in the pre-colonial African chapters of this book, Elewa and Kosai, it was from hearing from my siblings on the continent who still had access to their familial oral histories and were not ashamed or afraid of them and who could communicate them that I found the courage in which to tell this tale. What you mentioned about this conversation on Twitter with your Nigerian friend there seems ironic. And as you say, you talk in the book about the matriarchal and more gender fluid society that the um, the Kasongo people that Isaiah and Samuel, our main characters, come from originally. And in some respects, you know, we can look at the rejection of queerness as uh, a legacy of, of colonialism and slavery and and the import of Christianity. And ironically, now it seems that people like your Nigerian friends will say that the idea of queerness is a Western import. We're trying to impose these ideas that are alien to him. It is the most tragic irony of all that something that was natural to the landscape of Africa, and when I say Africa, I don't mean all 54 countries, but in a great number of them, um, what was deemed normal and natural was snatched away by invaders and the people who used to embrace this as natural and normal now see it as sinful and gross and believe that the sinful and gross is the original way that it was and it wasn't it was european colonialism as well as um, the work of christian missionaries that brought this idea that two men in love or two men having sex or two women in love two women having sex, or people who did not conform to gender norms were sinful. That's where that idea comes from. And so when I hear indigenous Africans argue um, that queerness is some sort of Western construction, I laugh to keep from crying. I want to talk about, we'll get on to looking into some of the characters. The book has a, you know, a huge, like you said, it's a polyphonic novel it has a a huge range of voices and we'll talk about some of those characters and before we do I wanted to say something particularly about the names of those characters um the book is called the prophets there is these seven prophet stroke ancestors that speak throughout the book but also the chapters are named after biblical verses um and so are a lot of the characters but of course a lot of these names of the enslaved peoples in the book are not their real names. They are names that have been forced upon them by somebody else. Tell me about the use of names in the book. Yes. One of the ways in which I wanted to critique how Christianity in particular stripped um, enslaved Africans 
who eventually became African-Americans and, and others in other regions of the world, of our ancestral knowledge was to show how these enslavers, one of the first acts they committed was to take our names away from us and give us Christian names such that we could be um, properly subjugated and separated from our cultural knowledge. And so in the book, I wanted to replicate that in a way and show how all of these people named, um, for example, Maggie, who I named after Mary Magdalene and others mirrored in some ways the biblical characters in which their names are taken from, some ways rebelled against their named forebearers, or in other ways illustrated how Christianity sort of functioned as an oppressive tool um, rather than a liberatory one. Where I come to the name the prophets is because all of these characters, whether Paul, the plantation owner, or Samuel and Isaiah, each of them in their own way gives us information that is crucial to understanding the human condition. And in that way, I think of them as prophets, especially because of the ancestral voices that weave in and out and speak in ways that are um, prophetic and offer up prophecy. I thought the prophets was probably the best way to name this book in a way that captured all of those things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Robert Jones Jr. And we're talking about his debut novel, The Prophets. Robert, as I said, I want to look at some of the characters 
a little more closely. But before we do, I'd like you to describe where, at the beginning of the book, certainly, our characters find themselves, which is this Mississippi plantation that the enslaved people themselves call empty. It's the the Halifax plantation, the name of the, the family that, that owns it, but the, the enslaved people call it empty. Describe to us this place. Empty exists fictionally within the world of the prophets in about the 1800s. And I'm very nebulous about time, particularly because enslaved people often didn't have access to the tools to mark time outside of nature itself. So they didn't have watches or clocks. They didn't know their dates of birth. So they relied on um, the moon and the seasons and the sun and the sunset to tell them how time passed. And so I wanted to honor that in a way by not being exactly clear on the time setting. But for the purposes of readers, this is the 1800s. And it's in the what we call the deep south of the United States of America. And that usually encompasses states like Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. And they're known for being absolutely incredibly cruel toward the enslaved population, generally thought to be more, more cruel than states that were closer to the North. And Samuel and Isaiah are on this plantation and they work as barn hands. They are in charge of tending to the animals and um, the barn and, and farm work and, and, and such whereas um, other enslaved people on the plantation are forced to work in the cotton fields. And Samuel and Isaiah work very closely and they're very good at what they do, partly because of how much they adore one another. Um, It makes the work bearable that they have each other to love. And they have somehow carved out a kind of safe space within that barn and even the people who come to visit them sort of feel that that safety as well even though the plantation itself is a treacherous and dangerous place and all of the um, enslaved call this plantation empty because that is what they feel it does to you it empties you out of your humanity not just them but also the people who own it and the people who own it call the plantation elizabeth after the mother of the plantation owner. But it is a beautiful place. And that's, what's, that's the conflict that many of the enslaved feel is that they are trapped on this place that is by this beautiful rushing river surrounded by these gorgeous trees and this lush landscape with a beautiful cotton field in the distance that they have to toil in with these other beautiful enslaved people that they are on this plantation with, with whom they cannot get too close to without it being dangerous. And they have to live here and uh, witness these horrors while in this beautiful landscape um, where there is no escape. So Isaiah and Samuel, they have forged this very fragile and dangerous bond and This relationship, I mean, of course, would be considered sinful and abhorrent by the slave owners. It's not something that can be tolerated. But more than that, their queerness in some way threatens the very fragile institution, the very fragile institution of slavery itself, doesn't it? It does indeed, because at some point it became unlawful to import enslaved Africans. So plantation owners 
in America decided, fine, what we'll do is we'll breed the slaves that we already have here. So they, they actually set up farms, breeding farms, in which enslaved people were forced to um, have sex with one another, which is just another way of saying rape. And in many instances, um, slave owners themselves, male and female, raped their slaves in order to create more slaves. And I, I'm loath to use that word slaves because it seems to erase the humanity of the people and it puts the sin in the wrong hands. I, I like to use the word enslaved so that we're clear on it being something that was done to them, not something that they are. But yes, they were in these treacherous situations and this is how the slave owners sort of got around the law is they inflicted these horrors upon the enslaved. I want to talk about your depiction of the Halifaxes, um, Paul, Ruth, his wife, and and their son, Tim. I mean, particularly, let's talk about Paul, first of all, because just by his very existence, he is a monster. But you paint all of these characters. I want to go to sort of say sympathetically, but very roundedly. They are humans. They leap off the page as real people. And yeah, let's just talk about your depiction of the, the slave owners. You know, it was really, really important for me to ensure that every single character I decided to give voice to in this narrative was fully rounded and fully human. Otherwise, I'd be writing what was essentially a comic book. Yes, there are antagonists. Um, yes, there are bad people. But in that phrase, bad people, there are two words, bad and people. And I, I had to make sure that both of those words were given their due. So for Paul, for example, who was the most difficult character for me to write because it felt like a betrayal to my ancestors to give him his humanity, I had to find and I had to open myself up to his story. And the question for me was, how does someone like him come to be? And in order to find the answer to that question, I had to let him be. I had to allow him to tell me what his childhood was like, what his um, desires are, um, what his loves are, like any other human being. I had to let him speak to me and tell me exactly who he was and why he was. And so it was always my intention from the very beginning when I decided that um, white characters would have a voice in this, that they would be fully rounded even if they were horrible people. Um, that was just really important to me to, to ensure that all of the characters were afforded their humanity. Because you said at the top of your question, Paul the monster. And one of the things I realized in writing this book was really, truly, there are no monsters. There are just human beings who do really bad things. And that is the scary part is because if you call Paul a monster, you can separate yourself from him and say, oh, that's something monsters do. That's not something I'm capable of. But the truth of the matter is anybody with power is capable of becoming a Paul. That is the thing we have to guard against. And we, we can't guard against it if we invent monsters. We can guard against it if we tell the truth, which is any of us are capable of the horrors Paul is capable of given the right circumstances. And I want to talk about the, the character Amos, who becomes, I guess, an antagonist to Samuel and Isaiah in that he adopts the religion of the slave owners and therefore takes against 
the two of them in terms of their relationship. And again, I don't want to go too much into give too much away about the story. But what's fascinating to me about Amos as well is that, again, he could quite easily have been like a, a stereotypical monster of a character in terms of his behaviour to them. But what he does is very much calculated as a way for himself and the woman who is unofficially married to Essie, a way for them to survive in the situation they find themselves in. Yeah, Amos finds himself in quite a conundrum because he legitimately loves Samuel and Isaiah. And even after he discovers what they are, he still feels like there's something beautiful about that. But he's in a position to help Essie and must decide, well, if I want to keep my promise to her, if I want to step into what I think is manhood by protecting my woman, I have to either convince these two to give up what they are or I have to sacrifice them. And he does this reluctantly, but also with purpose um, at the same time. So it's this both and rather than either or situation. And I think that's the tragedy of that character. Amos is one of the more interesting characters to me in the book because of the ways in which he thinks he's doing the right thing, but also is grappling with whether or not it's the right thing. Um, But yeah, that is the position he finds himself in. It's a very difficult one. To finish it off, can I get you to read us a little bit? Yes. I will be reading from a chapter called Maccabees, in which Samuel and Isaiah are given some bad news. And this is how they are attempting to reckon with the news they received. And here we go. Timothy called for me, Samuel mumbled again. Isaiah took a deep breath and held it. He let it out. Then because what else could he do, he shrugged. Silently, grief shook his body. Don't, Samuel said, standing still in the same spot, holding the cloth in his left hand. Don't what? Cry or shrug? Isaiah didn't know, and he was too tired to ask. But he did think about the ways in which his body wasn't his own, and how that condition showed up uniquely for everyone whose personhood wasn't just disputed, but denied. Swirling beneath him were the ways in which not having lawful claim to yourself diminished you, yes, but in another way, condemned those who invented the disconnection, he hoped. Maybe not in this realm, but absolutely in others, if there were others. Matching hard for hard did nothing but create wreckage, but being soft, while beautiful, was subject to being torn asunder by the harder thing. What other answer was there then but to be some kind of flexible? Stretch further so that there was too much difficulty in trying to pull you apart. Samuel was a hard thing. There was no use in trying to make him anything other than that. And he had every right, even if sometimes he didn't understand how his rigidity, that impenetrable door that Pua was perhaps the first to notice, built up in the wrong direction. But some people thought hard was the answer and believed that rather than bend, you had to try to snap them in half because they were confident that you couldn't. Isaiah, however, knew of the sporadic, 
but a tendent softness inside Samuel. Ground cover rocky, yes, but soil giving. And Samuel only half trusted him with that knowledge, preferred, actually, if Isaiah didn't know it at all. So some things he kept to himself. The shadow with the pointing hand would be one of them. It was in the barn, he could admit to that, but it wasn't in the woods or riding Maggie's back like a strapped babe. A mutual sigh released them from having to continue the argument. No one had to willingly relent or gloat over a victory. The inhalation then exhalation of breath provided enough room for them both to hold on to a little bit of dignity, even in the middle of desecration. Samuel looked down at the bundle in his hand. He looked up and motioned with his head for Isaiah to follow him as he walked around to the back of the barn. Isaiah walked behind him, tracing Samuel's footsteps, walking in them sometimes, and sometimes making his own path through the chicory and spurge. When they came to the rear center of the barn, where the sun was bright with anger and the knothole that had betrayed them was a kind of memorial, Samuel stopped. Isaiah walked a bit farther to where there was a little bit of shade because a yellow pine, not 30 years old yet, was in the process of spreading itself there, and he found its scent reassuring because of the way it hid his own. He turned to look at Samuel, moving against his nature because there was the possibility of accusatory shadow. He walked over to where Isaiah was and sat down at the base of the tree. Isaiah sat down next to him. Samuel flattened his lap and unfastened Maggie's cloth. And what did they have here? A veritable feast of boiled eggs, fried ham, blackberry jelly on thick slices of bread, two whole nectarines, and a big old hunk of brown cake. Mercy, Isaiah said. Samuel didn't want to remember the shadow he didn't see. He picked up a nectarine and gestured for Isaiah to take one for himself. Almost at the same time, they bit into them. The juices ran down their faces. Isaiah wiped the juice away, but Samuel didn't. He stared ahead at the rear of the barn. Neither of them spoke, but they each continued to eat, picking things from the cloth slowly, carefully, one with grateful hands, the other with discerning ones, like ritual, but without prayer because they didn't need one and respect was freely given. But still, it was solemn-like, holy, as unto a last, last supper. So I've been talking to Robert Jones Jr. We've been talking about his debut novel, The Prophets, which is out in the UK from Riverrun. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Neil, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.